We've all got habits, probably a mix of some good ones and also some bad ones that we wouldn't mind breaking out of. But most of us don't really take the time to examine just how we form our habits in the first place or the power that they have to shape our lives without our even noticing how our habits are responsible for our very identities. Well, today I'm speaking with someone who has created a kind of toolkit for making good habits stick and ridding ourselves of the bad ones. Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and welcome to the next chapter by American Express Business Class. In each episode of this podcast, we introduce you to a best-selling book that everyone in the business world can learn from. And we're also going to hear how the author's advice has evolved since they published their work and what they would write for their next chapter. Today, I'm speaking with James Clear. James first discovered the power of small habits as a teenager when a really gruesome and terrible injury forced him into a years-long recovery. And what he couldn't know at the time was that the habits he formed in recovery and that he then kept up all throughout college provided the groundwork for his research into the nature of habits later in his life when he became a writer and a blogger. All that work culminated in his 2018 book, Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. Since then, Atomic Habits has sold 15 million copies worldwide, a really staggering number. I sat down with James to discuss his techniques for habit formation and how they apply in business and the workplace. James Clear, thanks for being on the next chapter. Hey, pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. James, you suffered a really horrible injury in high school playing baseball, and it was the recovery from that injury where, in hindsight, you really started to see the value of forming great habits for becoming somebody who could fulfill their potential. And I'd love to just ask you about that and ask you to share that story with our audience, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. So the final day of my sophomore year of high school, I had this injury. I was hit in the face with a baseball bat. It was an accident. You know, my classmate took a swing and bat slipped out of his hands. And so they put me into this medically induced coma. It wasn't until the next day when my vitals had kind of stabilized that they released me from it. And that initiated this long process for me, this long recovery. And so it took, you know, the next nine or 12 months for me to get back on track at my physical therapy session, my first session, I was practicing basic motor patterns, like walking in a straight line. And at the time, I never would have described it like, oh, I was just trying to build small habits, or I was just trying to get 1% better. But that process of recovering from this, I had to take these very small steps to improve. And I think that's one of the lessons I take away from it is that, you know, we all have these things that are forced upon us in life. And I don't even really consider myself to have lived like a really challenging life or anything. It's just this injury was one of the obstacles that I happened to face. And I wasn't able to get back overnight. You know, it took four or five years before I was able to feel like, oh, I, you know, made the most of that. But small improvements can add up and they can be really meaningful in the long run. And it was through that experience that afterward, I was able to look back on it and see a lot of connection points to the things that I write about now the habits that I build, what that process was like. How did you first come to realize that habits were the key to making those incremental gains and not just other variables like discipline or perseverance, which matter and they certainly help, but may not be enough without forming the right habits? I had this moment, I came across this paper, I was just looking through old notebooks, 
where I had written down a bunch of goals that I had. It's like how much weight I wanted to lift in the gym and what kind of grades I wanted to get that semester and I don't know, but a bunch of other stuff. About half of them I ended up doing, not necessarily that year. Like, for example, I remember one of the goals that I had about uh, how much I wanted to bench press. I actually achieved it like years later. It wasn't, it wasn't that <laughs> semester. But the other half I didn't. And so I was like, well, clearly writing the goal down wasn't the thing that made the difference, you know, because I wrote all these down, but only half of them actually happened. And so I kind of had this moment where I realized, well, the ones that I made progress on were the ones that I had habits built around. And the ones that I didn't have some kind of consistent lifestyle built around them, the ones that I wasn't showing up and working toward each day, uh, yeah, of course those didn't happen. And it sounds obvious in retrospect, but it took a while and took a good amount of reflection for me to kind of come to that realization. You do talk a bit in the book about how there's an element of freedom to creating these habits, because if you have the ability to form good habits, then it offers you the freedom to pursue the really hard skills that you want to develop, but which would be really hard, maybe even impossible to develop without good habits. And so in that sense, having good habits can actually expand your capacity to do the things that you really want to do in life. Sometimes I think, you know, like atomic habits is actually very non-prescriptive. I never tell people which habits they should build or in what way they should do it or whatever. The way that I think about it is I'm laying out a set of tools on the table. And so, you know, my job is to say, listen, here's how habits work. And here's a wrench and here's a screwdriver and here's a hammer. And your job is to say, you know what, for my situation, it feels like what I need is the hammer, or maybe that's not a good fit. What I need is the wrench. And so if you have a more full toolkit, if you have a broader tool belt, then you're yeah, you're in a better position to build the skills that you want or to, you know, try to achieve the things that you're hoping to achieve. We should make that distinction here, by the way, between just habits versus atomic habits. Do you want to say a little bit more about that, actually, before we dive into some of the stuff that's in the book? Sure. So I chose the phrase atomic habits as the title for three reasons. So the first meaning of the word atomic is tiny or small, like an atom. And that is a big part of the philosophy. I think habits should be small and easy to do. The second meaning of the word atomic, which is the one that people often overlook, is it's the unit in a larger system. So atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds, and so on. And your daily habits are kind of like that. They're little pieces of a larger system that makes up kind of your daily routine. And then the third and final meaning is the source of immense energy or power. And so I think if you understand all three of those meanings, you sort of see like the overall arc of the book, which is, listen, we're going to start with changes. We're going to start with habits that are really small and easy to do. And then we're going to layer them on top of each other, like units in a larger system, like atoms in a molecule. And eventually that system can carry you towards some really remarkable or powerful results. And so that kind of triplet meaning of the word atomic or those different angles, I think, speaks to the overall philosophy behind the book. Yeah, it also seems like what you just said gets at an apparent tension between the idea of atomic habits and starting out small versus somebody who has big ambitions for their lives or for their careers. You're actually saying that small habits reinforce huge ambition. You're not saying that those two things are opposed to each other. I think that's right. I, the little shorthand phrase I like to keep in mind is when making plans, think big. When making progress, think small. So I consider myself to be someone who's pretty ambitious. I, I really only get excited when I'm working on a project that feels like it has the potential to be something big. So when you're in that strategy phase or when you're in that dreaming phase, yeah, I think that's a great way to be. You know, like, let's, let's try to think as big as possible. Let's think really long-term, long-time horizons. The two 
modes of time or the two periods of time to focus on are either 10 years or one hour. So 10 years from now, what can you do with a really long time horizon? What are the thing? Most of the things that provide like deep meaning in life require really long time horizons, building a business, cultivating a great marriage, raising kids, getting in the best shape of your life. Like these are not things that happen overnight. And so how do you work toward those 10 year things? in these really small one minute or one hour increments, something that is self-contained, you know, one hour is enough time that you could go on a good date or have a good workout or complete a good reading or writing session. And so if you can just try to make the most of that little unit and it's oriented toward this long-term thing that you're trying to achieve, I think that's how you not only live good days and enjoy the moment, enjoy the hour that you happen to have just spent, but also those days start to accumulate and stack up and compound. And that's where you get into this like really powerful situation because if you don't just live your days, if you accumulate them, then all of a sudden you turn around two or five or 10 years later and you have this like tidal wave of previous effort. Your habits from your past are still working for you in some way. And that puts you in a really powerful position. Well, let's go ahead and get into some of the ideas and tools that you write about in your book, Atomic Habits. Uh, I want to start with this relationship between identity and habit. How are those two things related? And could you maybe give us a couple of examples as well? Sure. So there's a concept in the book that I call identity-based habits. And the core idea is that true behavior change is really identity change. It's really getting you to shift the story about who you are or what you stand for, or what's part of your normal. And this is why sometimes I'll give examples like, you know, the real goal is not to read a book. The goal is to become a reader. The goal is not to do some silent meditation retreat. It's to become a meditator. The goal is not to run a marathon. It's to become a runner. Now, in those examples, I'm using labels like reader or runner or meditator, but it's true for just kind of general characteristics that you have for your identity too. You know, like I'm the type of person who shows up on time or I'm the type of person who finishes what they start. And the more that that element of your identity becomes something that you believe in, kind of the easier it becomes to live that type of lifestyle or to follow through on those behaviors. And I think it's the ultimate reason, the true reason that habits matter We often talk about habits as mattering or making a difference because of the external results that they'll get you. Hey, habits will help you reduce stress or they'll help you make more money or they'll help you get in shape. And and look, like habits can do that stuff and that's great. But the real reason that habits matter is that every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you wish to become. So really what we start with is not asking ourselves, what do I want to achieve? We start by asking ourselves, who do I want to become and which habits reinforce that desired identity? What are my actions moving me closer to? And uh, that angle of identity-based habits, I think, is a really beneficial way to start when thinking about the behaviors that you want to build. Yeah, and given our audience, I think a lot of our listeners are also going to be curious to know how this relationship between identity and habit also relates to their careers and specifically the identities of the businesses and the companies for whom they work. Hmm. So if you now get promoted to a position of leadership, but you've always told yourself, I'm not much of a manager, right? 
Now there's something kind of interesting that you have to negotiate with yourself and with your business. And in particular, you almost have to establish an entirely new identity. So how do you think habits can help with that? And can you just kind of say more about the relationship between the identity of your business, the identity of the person, and where habits fit into that? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I remember hearing this example from Stephen Pressfield one time who wrote The War of Art. And he, he said, you know, like, if you ever go to the gym for the first time in a while, you feel like, I kind of feel stupid. Like, am I doing this exercise right? I wonder, worry that people are judging me. Like, you definitely feel, you know, uncomfortable in some way. And you don't know the protocol, like if you have to wait for a machine or something. For sure. There's, there's just a lot of uncomfortable feelings, right? But if you keep showing up, you turn around a year or two or three years later, and eventually you start to get comfortable there. You get to know people. You understand how it works. You start to find your rhythm and your workout. And it's kind of like... If becomes your territory in a sense. And I can imagine like in your example of becoming a manager, taking some new kind of leadership role, it does not feel like your territory on day one. Now all of a sudden you're being asked to do a lot of things or behave in a way that a manager behaves, whatever that may mean. And you feel uncomfortable. But the only ways that I know to get through that, one is time. So it's just like time in the gym, time sitting down writing, time in the role as a manager, like you're going to get more comfortable with it as it goes on. And the second is what we kind of were just talking about with identity-based habits, which is taking small actions that prove to yourself that you can be that kind of person. So no, giving one bit of positive feedback to somebody on the team does not make you the world's best manager, but it does give you a little indication that, hey, I can be this kind of person. I can cultivate this type of identity. And what about a company's mission statement, for example, which also has a lot of things related to identity? How do habits come into play? And is there such a thing as like organizational habits and not just personal habits and, and how they interact? Usually when we talk about it in a business context, people use the word culture. You know, they'll talk about the culture of the company or the mission statement or the vision statement or something like that. And what I always say is, look, the true culture of any business is the shared habits of that business. If it's not a habit, it's not actually part of your culture. It's just a saying that you came up with at the offsite one time or a slogan that's hanging on the wall in the lobby, but it's not actually part of the fabric of the company. So partially, this is a discussion that leaders and executives need to have about what is the true culture of our business and is that uh, are those habits reinforcing the identity that we want to have as a company? What is it that we're trying to move toward? And again, I come back to that question of like, what are we optimizing for? Are we optimizing for environmental sustainability? Are we optimizing for profitability? Are we optimizing for autonomy for our staff and creative freedom? So once we know what we're optimizing for, and once we know what habits we have, what kind of path does that tell us that we're on? And are we on a trajectory that will end where we hope to end up at? Because if not, then something needs to change with the habits that we're building. Yeah, and relatedly, one of the points that you really emphasize in the book is that somebody's surrounding environment, their physical environment, can actually matter more for good habit forming than individual willpower. And I'd love to just hear more about that idea, especially because given what you just said, it seems like one of the tasks that a company should, you know, really take seriously and a company's leaders should take seriously is creating the right environment for good habit forming. Imagine that you have two plants. You put one of them in rich, fertile soil. It gets a lot of sunshine and rain. You have another plant that just kind of falls on like a rocky terrain. It's like hanging on the side of a cliff. It's very windy. It's kind of shaded. doesn't get much sunlight. One of those plants is going to grow much better than the other. But would you look at the plant that's hanging on the side of the cliff and be like, why don't you have more willpower? 
You know, why don't you want it more? You know, why aren't you trying harder to grow? And, you know, it's kind of a ridiculous scenario when you think about it that way. But man, we do that to ourselves so often, or sometimes society does it to us. So I think this is a great place to start when you're trying to build better habits, which is how can I optimize my environment to cultivate or to support the habits that I want to build? So one interesting thing I think you can do is just hold one habit in the back of your mind, just one thing you're trying to build, and then walk into the rooms where you spend most of your time each day, your office, your kitchen, your living room, and look around that space and ask yourself, what habits are easy here? What habits are obvious here? What is this space designed to encourage? And you'll start to notice a couple things that you can do to make the good habit the path of least resistance. Those things are not going to dramatically change your behavior overnight, but if you make a dozen or two dozen or 50 little adjustments to your environment like that, now all of a sudden you're in a space where the world is working to support you. You know, like your, your environment is trying to build the habits with you rather than swimming upstream all the time. A lot of the ideas that we've already discussed for how to create good habits fit into this four-step process that you describe in the book and which is based on your reading of the psychology literature on habit forming. And I'd love to do a kind of rapid-fire segment where we just go through each of the four so that people can understand the kind of systematic way of thinking about habit forming. So step one, there's an initial cue and you got to make it obvious. What should we know about that? Yeah. So the cue is just something that you notice. So you're driving down the road, you hear an ambulance behind you. The siren is an auditory cue, starts the habit of pulling to the side of the road. Or you walk into the kitchen, you see a plate of cookies on the counter. That's a visual cue, starts the habit of eating a cookie. So the cue is the thing that initiates the process. And so the first law of behavior change is to make it obvious. You want the cue to be as obvious as possible, because if it is, then you're more likely to take action on it. So there are many ways you can do this. Most of them come back to the environment design ideas that we were talking about a minute ago. You know, putting the glass of water, you want to drink more water, fill up a huge water bottle and have it sit right in front of you on your desk all day. It's that kind of stuff where you're trying to make it obvious. So that's step one. And then step two is make it attractive. And this corresponds to the concept of craving. What should we know about that? So this actually comes out of a lot of the neuroscience research. There's a great book called How Emotions Are Made by Lisa Feldman Barrett. She said something in that book that really kind of sparked an insight for me. Life is actually more proactive than reactive. So we are constantly generating predictions about what to do in the next moment. So you see that plate of cookies on the counter in the kitchen, visual cue, and then your brain predicts, hey, those will be sweet, sugary, tasty, enjoyable. And so the second stage there, the craving, is all about desire. So this is why we want to make our habits attractive. The more attractive or appealing a habit is to you, the more motivated you'll feel to do it. And that sounds pretty straightforward, but man, you'd be surprised how often people avoid this. You know, like the most common New Year's resolution is some form of working out or exercise. So everybody wants to go to the gym. They feel like society wants them to go to the gym, not because they actually want to do it. And you should choose the version of your habits that you are most genuinely excited about. You know, you you don't have to go to the gym. You could do yoga or rock climb or kayak or go for a run or ride a bike. Like there's an endless list of ways to live an active, healthy lifestyle. And you should choose the version of that habit that brings you the most personal satisfaction or is the most appealing to you. Yeah, and in this section, by the way, on making it attractive, you also write something really interesting about imitation. And you write, quote, we imitate the habits of three groups in particular, the close, the many, 
and the powerful, unquote. This is really interesting for a few reasons, but it suggests that we should surround ourselves with the kinds of people who have the habits that we ourselves would like to form. And it also suggests that we should choose companies to work for where the leadership really is embodying the kinds of behaviors that we ourselves should one day hope to embody because perhaps subconsciously we end up imitating that behavior anyways. For sure. This is ultimately why I became an entrepreneur. I was getting my MBA. I was on this path where I was looking at all the jobs my classmates were getting. And I was like, I don't, I actually don't want that. Like, I, I don't want to be an executive at a Fortune 500 company. That's not, that's not the lifestyle that I want. And so, yeah, sometimes you have to have that conversation with yourself and figure out what the right path is. But the punchline, bringing it back to habits, is you want to join groups where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Because if it's normal in that group, it's going to be very motivating for you to stick to it. You know, a lot of the habits that we try to build, they're actually very socially reinforced, even though we don't really think about it that way. Like, if I walk outside my house and I see my neighbor mowing their their lawn, I might think, oh, I need to cut the grass too. And so it's actually that social expectation, that social norm of what it means to be a neighbor on this street that motivates the habit. And so if people have to choose between, you know, I have habits that I don't really love, but I fit in, I belong, I'm part of something. Or I have the habits that I want to have, but I'm cast out, I'm ostracized, I'm criticized. A lot of the time, the desire to belong will overpower the desire to improve. And so you need to get those two things aligned by joining groups where your desired behavior is normal. All right, step three in this four-part process, there's a response to the cue and the craving. And the specific step that you advise is make it easy. Actions and habits are easier or more they are more likely to happen when they're frictionless, when they're simple, when they're convenient, when they're easy. To a large degree, your choices each day are a byproduct of convenience. I think that all four laws of behavior change can be useful and can be utilized for building better habits. If I could only pick one, then I would pick the third law. I'd pick make it easy. If there's just one thing to take away, it's make your habits as easy as possible. The most common pitfall that people slide into is they try to make their habits too difficult. And this is very understandable and something that I have fallen into a lot myself. If you're, particularly if you're an ambitious person, you sit down and you start to think about the changes you want to make. And you're like, man, think about what I could do. Like, what would peak performance look like for me? You know, like if I was really on, if I was like just firing on all cylinders, what would that day look like? And you kind of start there for dreaming about the habits that you want to build. And I actually think the opposite approach could be even more useful. Rather than asking yourself or thinking about what can I do on my best day, ask yourself, what can I stick to even on the bad days? And use that as your baseline. Use that as your starting area. And, you know, look, if you feel good and you can do more, then great. Go ahead and do more. But you're really trying to scale it down so that you maintain consistency and progress. And that's really critical because of what we mentioned earlier in this conversation, which is casting votes for your desired identity. You can look at yourself in the mirror at the end of the night and you can say, you know what? Situation wasn't perfect. Like today didn't go the way I wanted to, but... I still cast a vote for my desired identity. I sh still showed up today. And in that way, I think the bad days actually count for more than the good days in the long run. Yeah, and step four, there's a reward 
for actually performing the habit. And you write that you got to make it satisfying. And what's interesting about this one is that at least in a workplace context, there's all kinds of different rewards that are actually available. There is money, of course, but there's also status and promotion. There's all kinds of things. And it makes me wonder what are the most effective rewards for helping to really establish and entrench positive habits. So this process that we've described so far, cue, craving, response, reward, it's kind of like going around a clock. It's kind of like a feedback loop. And the more that behaviors are preceded by a reliable cue and followed by an enjoyable reward, the tighter that feedback loop gets and the more ingrained the habit becomes. And so the role of the reward is to close that feedback loop. It's to signal to your brain, hey, this was enjoyable, this was beneficial, you got what you want, or that was, you know, that helped you in some way. Now, the best way to do that, I don't even know that you can give an answer because it's going to be so contextual and differ based on the person. And it also, not only does it differ based on the person, it will change for an individual person throughout their life. You know, like what I am optimizing for now is different than what I was optimizing for 10 years ago. And that'll probably be different 10 years from now. And you can just imagine, you know, sometimes money is more important to you. Sometimes freedom is more important to you. Sometimes your health is more important to you. And so, you know, as you kind of go through these seasons of your life, the thing that you find rewarding may shift. I will give one general principle, which is external rewards, whether it's money or you could imagine something like saying, um, if I don't miss a workout for a week, then I do something else to take care of my body. Like I book a massage or I, you know, uh, take a bubble bath or something like that. External rewards like that can be helpful. I think they're more helpful early on because you don't have the identity associated with the habit yet. Ultimately, the, the deepest reward is the feeling that you're being the kind of person you want to be when you're doing the habit. So, you know, I've spent probably 15 years in the gym at this point. And that's the best part of it for me now. Like, do I want the physical benefits of working out? Sure. Like that sounds great too. But really the thing I like most is I just like how I feel about myself when I'm in the middle of a workout. And so even if I haven't completed a set yet, I can feel good about the identity that I'm reinforcing while I'm doing it. You're listening to The Next Chapter by American Express Business Class. When we come back, I'll ask James what he would write for his next chapter and how to use the Habit Toolkit when the circumstances of your life shift. Looking for help to stay ahead of the business curve? Explore Business Class by American Express to discover real-world inspiration and insights to help you make decisions that can keep you competitive in today's complex and fast-changing world of business. Head to go.amx slash bclass for more and to get the edge you need to face the road ahead with confidence. That's go.amx slash bclass. The title of this podcast is The Next Chapter, and the question that we like to ask all our guests is, if you could add one more chapter to your book, Atomic Habits, right now, given everything you've learned since it was published back in 2018, what would be the theme of that next chapter? So I actually tried to do this the first time around. So I, you know, it took me, depending on how you measure <laughs> oh, so it. So you'll have a specific answer. <laughs> well, I, uh, so, you know, it took about five years to write the book. And I scrambled and panicked at the last minute, like the last two weeks before I was supposed to finally hand the manuscript in. I tried to write another chapter and it got to be, it was like 2 a.m. on the night before I was supposed to send it over. 
and I'm reading through this chapter bleary-eyed, and I was like, this chapter sucks. Like, this, this is bad. <laughs> and, you know, eventually I realized, okay, don't be an idiot about this. Of course it sucks. Like, you've been working on the rest of the book for five years. How, what makes you think you can write a good chapter in a week? And so I pulled it. But the topic of that chapter was about timing and choosing the right time, both the time of the day for a habit to be built, but also the right time in your life for a habit to be built. So first, let's say somebody wants to start meditating. Well, generally speaking, if I'm just given a broad rule of thumb, yes, I do think it usually works better if you try to build a new habit earlier in the day. But I look at myself right now, I have two young kids, you know, you got two toddlers running around at 7am and you're trying to get pants on them and get everybody breakfast. Like that's not a good time to meditate. And so <laughs> the choice of that timing, that's an interesting discussion to have about like, when does a habit get inserted into your day? So that's one part of it. And then the second part is about, you know, I'm an ambitious person. I have a lot of things I want to do, but the reality is everybody faces this trade-off. There are only 24 hours in a day. And the more that you fracture your attention, the harder it becomes to do something at an exceptional level. And so you have to have this hard conversation with yourself where you say, listen, this habit might be something you want to do sometime, or this project might be something you want to complete, but now is not the time. Because if you do it, you're going to divide yourself in too many ways, and you're going to end up doing everything in a poor manner rather than one thing in a great manner. And so it's about choosing the seasons of life and what habits fit into those different seasons. That's fascinating because thinking even more broadly – it could also just be the case that, you know, when to form a habit and which types of habits you form really is contingent on your own situation in life. And it might also just be contingent on who you are. The process of behavior change often starts with self-awareness. It's understanding who you are, what your life is like, what kind of lifestyle you want to live. And it requires a certain amount of self-experimentation, you know, like, these are all just tools that you can utilize. You should take a little bit of time to experiment with those and try to figure out what blend of these is the best fit for me. Because if you're unwilling to self-experiment, it's just really hard for it to work for you. I mean, if you're just hoping someone can hand you like a prescription and say, hey, just do these six things, it usually doesn't work that way. And even if it does work that way, it probably won't work for very long because life is dynamic not static. You know, you change jobs or you have a kid or you move to a different city or whatever it is, some season of life shifts and then you need to adjust your habits again. So having that mindset of trying to be self-aware, continuing to reflect on what you need and where you're at and what kind of lifestyle you want to live, that's an important meta habit that applies to all of the other strategies we've talked about. And similarly, we've just been through a really extraordinary period, the pandemic era. And I'm kind of curious to know if you've seen, you know, some new habits that people have started forming, or if there are some ways in which you think the lessons of your book can apply to people who are suddenly leading radically different lives than the lives that they were living before for any number of reasons. Well, certainly it shifted habits in a huge way. One way to define a habit is it's a behavior that is tied to a particular context. So your kitchen table at 7 a.m. is the context where you have the habit of drinking a cup of coffee, for example. And so behaviors tend to get linked to those environments or those times or situations. And whenever the environment changes in a big way, behavior tends to change in a big way. And 
boy, we may have never had a situation where the environment shifted so dramatically for so many people at the same time as the pandemic. And it used to be that your pantry was miles away when you were at the office, but now it's right around the corner as you work from the kitchen table and you can snack anytime. And so things like that really shifted habits for people. And if you're sitting there and you're thinking, all right, in this new environment or in this new situation that I have, I have this habit that I want to build, but I just keep procrastinating on it. How can I get started? Or maybe in a business context, you're thinking about it as an executive or as a manager with your team. And you're like, you know what? We have this behavior. We keep asking people to do it, but they only do it every now and then. How can we get them to be more consistent? Just go through those four steps and ask yourself, how can we make the behavior more obvious? How can we make it more attractive? How can I make it easier? How can I make it more satisfying? And the answers to those questions will reveal different steps that you can take to increase the odds that that habit's going to occur. Is there something about atomic habits that you find people frequently get wrong and that you'd like to kind of address that specific misrepresentation or, or misunderstanding? I don't think anybody intentionally is getting it wrong. I think there's just a line of thinking that happens pretty naturally, which is you sit down and you start thinking about the changes that you want to make. And so let's say somebody says something like, you know what? All right, I read this book. I want to start eating better. Um, and the change that I'm going to make, I'm just going to keep it simple. I'm just going to focus on eating healthy. That sounds simple on the surface, but actually once you start to break it down, there are a variety of sub habits or associated habits linked to that. Well, now you need a meal planning habit because what are you going to make? You need a grocery shopping habit. So now you're going to the store more frequently. And you can start to go through and start to see how there are more things associated with this than just simply eat healthy. And so it's almost always a little more complicated than people think. And that's why I really encourage people to scale it down and try to keep it simple. You know, putting your shoes on and walking around the block does not sound like a workout that can change your life, but it needs to become a lifestyle first, and then you can scale it up and improve it. Last question. You're not just an author. You also run a business of your own. It's called the Habits Academy. And I'd love to just hear some advice you have for other people who run businesses in terms of the lessons that you've learned from running one and how that also applies to good habit forming. Oh, man, I love entrepreneurship. I could talk about this for another hour and a half. So I have some things that I do that have been very powerful for me, but it's just the way that I build my business. I'm not saying everybody should do it this way. It's just these things have been very helpful for me. So the first thing is the number one thing that I always focus on is try to be useful. I try not to write anything, to tweet anything, to share anything, to put out a newsletter. If it cannot provide genuine value in the other person's life, then I should not be creating it. So everything I create, I want to try to pass that bar or clear that standard. And I think that's a really healthy way to start for any business. Another thing, this is, again, specific to my business. I think I would be a terrible manager. And so I don't want to have a big team. I'm not interested in having a company with 50 or 100 or 1,000 employees. So I have one employee and I have no plans to grow. And then, you know, I could give you a, a thousand of these things, but I'll just give you one more. And that is everything is easier if you work with great people. And so my business has been built around having a small team, but having a lot of partnerships, my publisher, my literary agent, speaking agency, things like that, these different companies that I work for. And it sounds so simple, but it's really hard to do in the moment, especially when you're building a business, because in the early days, there's just so much else for you to do. And you're always worried about the whole thing falling apart. And like, you know, will, will this even work? But if you can keep your standards high, 
and only work with all-star teams, you're so much more likely to get all-star results. You know, if you work with people who are great at the thing they do, I would much rather give them a cut and, you know, let everybody at the table eat and I make a little bit less money on each transaction, but I end up making way more because the pie is so much bigger because you're working with great people and the projects do so much better. So it's really about having some of that abundance mindset and trying to find great people to work with, not being greedy and trying to keep it all for yourself and still trying to provide maximum value. And I think you kind of mix all that stuff together in the pot and you end up with some really good results. I think that's a great place to close. James Clear, author of Atomic Habits. Thanks so much for being on the next chapter. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Next Chapter by American Express Business Class. Special thanks to James Clear for coming on the show today. And also a big, big final thanks from me to you, the listeners. This is the last episode of the second season of our show. And just like in the first season, I've had a great time speaking with all these authors and thinkers and revisiting their books and asking them to update us on how their ideas apply in these incredibly interesting times that we're all living through. And I'm just so thankful that all of you listeners gave us your time and your attention for one more season. And I want to send an extra bit of gratitude to those of you who also shared your feedback with us. We really do appreciate it. If you haven't gotten a chance yet, please go back and check out my earlier interviews with Maria Konnikova about risk and poker, Mashama Bailey and Jono Morsano on partnerships, David Epstein on generalists, Susan Kane on introversion, and Julie Zhu on management. This has been The Next Chapter by American Express Business Class, and I'm Cardiff Garcia. Thank you so much for listening. 